men have low free testosterone, but normal total T, they still have all the symptoms. If they have a low total testosterone, by the way, but their free testosterone was normal, no symptoms. So the symptoms follow free testosterone, they do not follow total testosterone. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am Rose Bempukolsky. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for always being committed to being your best self. Today's podcast is going to blow your mind. Gentlemen, this one's for you. We're going to get into male sexual function. We're going to get into hormone optimization for men. We're going to get into all the myths and common mistakes and ultimately how to dial in your hormone utilization for yourself. And if it's even a good idea, we're going to talk about some of the myths around male sexual dysfunction, and ultimately how we can start optimizing our performance in the gym and in the bedroom. Gents, thank you for joining me. Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler joins me today to discuss so many incredible things when it comes to optimization of health. Dr. Morgenthaler is a director of men's health and an associate professor of urology at Harvard Medical School. He lectures nationally and internationally um, to physicians and experts, ultimately to help them understand, diagnose, and treat everything in the area of men's sexual health and reproductive dysfunction. Uh, his areas of expertise include hypogonadism, which is ultimately low testosterone, um, sexual dysfunction, male infertility, prostate disorders, vasectomies, uh, microsurgical vasectomy reversals. Uh, he is the top of the top. He, when, you tell, when it comes to hormone optimization in men, Dr. Morgan Teller is the man that you want to listen to. He's the author of a book called The Viagra Myth, Surprising Impact on Love and Relationships, um, some deep dives into the male body. And we talk about a lot. We talk about a lot today, a lot of really, really uh, highly actionable, valuable information, overcome a lot of myths. We talk about the real scoop on aromatase inhibitors, and I'm pretty skeptical typically on aromatase inhibitors, and you're going to be really interested to hear what Dr. Morgan Teller has to say. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Water and Wellness, waterandwellness.com. If you remember my conversation with Robert Slovak, we got into understanding reverse osmosis water. We got into hydrogen, molecular hydrogen. We got into Quinton Minerals, and all three of those products are available to you for a limited time only at a 10% discount site-wide if you go over to Water and wellness.com slash muscle intelligence spell it all out water and wellness.com slash muscle intelligence i know it's a mouthful but you got it and you can get hooked up with 10 percent off nationwide if you're in canada you can also get a discount it's a different website it's vita express v-i-t-a-e-x-p-r-e-s-s dot c-a slash muscle intelligence and continue to benefit from our amazing offers uh one of my favorite products on Water and Wellness is their AquaTrue countertop water filter. It's a true reverse osmosis filter. It's a little one, fits comfortably on your countertop, and it's the best way to get all those tap impurities out of your water. If you're drinking typical tap water, even bottled water, sometimes those can be loaded with impurities. And, and using a reverse osmosis filter is an amazing way to get all those impurities out there. Truly the best way, that the gold standard in purification uh, my advice is you remineralize your waters after you've used the AquaTrue or reverse osmosis. And that's why Quinton is actually a great way to stack with um, AquaTrue because you're removing all, literally the, the reverse osmosis strips everything out. So you do tend to lose minerals. And we want to make sure we're getting some of these trace minerals back into our bodies. And so taking a Quinton uh, vial or ampule every morning 
is a really good way to keep your body mineralized and ultimately energized. And if you're someone who lacks energy, believe it or not, one of the easiest things you can do for improving your morning energy is simply taking one of these quinton or any type of trace mineral where you're getting a good amount of sodium and a good amount of trace minerals that your body needs to ultimately thrive. There's so much more to nutrition than just protein, carbs, and fats that just gets missed in the you know the common narrative on the internet. So ladies and gents, if you are someone who's committed to living your best life, uh, one, you're going to love this podcast. Two, you should check out waterandwellness.com slash muscle intelligence. Absolutely pick up the aqua tree, whether it be for yourself, your family, your kids, or even at the office. It's a great way to make sure you're getting the highest quality water. And then don't forget to stack a quinton on top of that. Molecular hydrogen is something that I like to use when I travel. So when you're undergoing a lot of stress or oxidative stress or um, you know oxidative stress from travel, which is the radiation you're exposed to in an airplane, this is the, probably the best way we've found yet to mitigate that uh, oxidative stress, at least so the data will say. So without further rambling from me, enjoy this podcast with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler. Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, sir, I'm an enormous fan. You've got an innumerable year, years of experience in this space, someone I've been studying for a long time. Every time I seem to research men's health optimization, sexual health optimization, testosterone, your name comes up. And to uh, join me on the show today, I'm incredibly honored that you'd make the time. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I know you're incredibly busy and yet uh, incredibly in demand. Uh, so we're, we're going to dig into a lot of things as, as best we can. So starting off with one of the things that you're maybe most known for is kind of dispelling a lot of the myths around testosterone use. I think a lot of my audience is interested, if not already engaging in testosterone replacement therapy. As I mentioned prior to us uh, recording, a lot of the audience is men over 35. And we reached this point where they're like, hey, you know what? I don't feel as good as I used to. Or I want to feel a little bit better. And there, there's so much conflicting uh, data and conflicting evidence out there that says, hey, testosterone is going to give you heart disease. Testosterone is going to shorten your life. I'd love to have you just kind of start down that conversation around like, well, is it, should we be considering testosterone replacement or, or natural therapies out there that exist that can do the same? Yeah. So, you know, listen, the, um, I'll give you the punchline and then <laughs> let me back though. You know, the punchline is, is that I think the evidence right now is crystal clear that having a normal or healthy level of testosterone is really important for a person's health, general health, maybe longevity, and that having low levels of testosterone can cause all sorts of problems for people. Not to mention the, the symptoms that men have that just make them feel lousy. So, you know, when I started this, there wasn't that much evidence. Testosterone was first synthesized, uh, first created the ability to create a test tube in the mid-1930s. By 1940, there was already an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about how marvelous testosterone was for men who were what they were, what's been called hypogonadal, basically low levels of testosterone. And they didn't have blood tests back then, but you know, guys didn't have much, uh, much of a beard, they didn't have much body hair, testicles were small, didn't have sex drive, things like that. In 1940, this guy, Joseph Ob, uh, wrote um, how the effects are almost immediate. And in addition to some of the physical changes, you know, like beard grew, body hair grew. And what he noticed also was that uh, vigor, psychological vigor was improved almost immediately. Really interesting. But what happened was, that was 1940. 1941 came a paper um, by a future Nobel Prize winner named Charles Huggins 
who basically took men with advanced prostate cancer for which there had been no treatment at that time. And he showed, based on previous experiments with dogs uh, who also can get prostate cancer, uh, he showed that if he removed the testicles, which we call castration and lowers testosterone, that a biomarker, a blood test, now we use PSA, but before they use something else, that it got better. And he wrote that when he gave testosterone, that that biomarker called acid phosphates went up. And that was 1941. And that was, and he wrote that testosterone activates prostate cancer. 1941, kaput. That was kind of the end of testosterone for five, six decades. And when I finished my training in 1988, I'm a urologist. I uh, came out of the Harvard system. I've been on the Harvard faculty now for 30 plus years. Uh, in my training, we learned, as everybody did, that testosterone caused prostate cancer, just caused it. And uh, if you raise testosterone in somebody, that meant that they were at higher risk for getting prostate cancer. And God forbid you gave testosterone to men who with known or, or unsuspected prostate cancer, we learned the phrase, it was like pouring gasoline on a fire. And, you know, my story was that I came at this sort of from a funny direction, which is that I had worked in a laboratory as an undergraduate, also at Harvard, for three years working with lizards. And the project, believe it or not, was looking at how these lizards made it and the effect of testosterone. And so these are the little guys, they're about, you know, four inches long, you find them all across Florida. And uh, they're anoles, A-N-O-L-E-S. And if you castrate the male and you put him in a cage with a female, instead of the usual display he has where this bright colored flap of skin comes out called a dewlap and the head bobs up and down quickly, instead of that, they don't do anything. They don't care that the female's there. They have nothing. They have no interest, no testosterone because it's the testicles that make testosterone. And my project was put testosterone in their brains. In the parts of the brains that we had already recognized, we'd done work that showed that it took up testosterone and was probably related to sexual behavior. And when I was successful in putting a little pellet of testosterone into these teeny weeny little brains in the right place, the male would see the female, his bright colored flap of skin would come out to do that, head would bob up and down and they would mate. It was absolutely amazing. So that was my first paper on testosterone, 1978. I went to medical school, six years of residency, learned very little about testosterone, very little. We knew it was important for puberty and men and, and some sort of masculine traits, beard again, muscle definition. And we knew that it caused prostate cancer. That's what we were taught. And the only thing we ever did with testosterone was we lowered it. And frankly, when I was in my training, guys would come in, we didn't have PSA yet. And a lot of guys would come into the emergency room with pain in their bones that turned out to be from metastatic prostate cancer. And uh, we would remove their testicles. Hmm. And sometimes the pain got better pretty quickly. Over the course of a few years, they came up with medical treatments that lower testosterone. So we rarely do that surgery to remove the testicles. But it seemed obvious that testosterone was super dangerous. And then what happened to me was, is I, I started my practice on the hospital staff at one of the Harvard teaching hospitals. 
Beth Israel Hospital, now called Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I, ha- I was doing some male infertility and male sexual uh, dysfunction work, guys with ED, trouble with ejaculation, things like that. And some of these men were desperate. And it was 10 years before Viagra would show up. We didn't have that much to offer. And some of these guys would say their marriages were failing. You know, they couldn't take care of their partners. Uh, they felt terrible. They didn't have anything that I could offer them. And I wondered to myself whether guys might be like lizards. And it turned out that they were. And we gave a few of these guys testosterone. They had these marvelous responses, not just in terms of sex, but they said things that I didn't even know how to interpret. They said they felt better in general. They had optimism. Uh, their wives liked them more. They had patience for their children, small children. Really amazing. And that's it was so good, in fact, that even though I still believed because of my training that testosterone was dangerous, I kept giving it. And I would have a conversation with these men about the risks of testosterone. And we always talked about prostate cancer. And as time went on and I started very carefully monitoring these guys very closely, it turned out that nothing was happening with them around prostate cancer. And I ended up publishing one paper after another after another of my experience with these guys. And, you know, fast forward 30 plus years, and it turns out to not be true. It's simply not true. And now there are any number of very impressive studies that show that men who get testosterone or even have higher levels of testosterone naturally compared to men who have lower are at no increased risk of getting prostate cancer. That was the big book book. And it actually opened that, that research and showing that prostate cancer wasn't so concerning. Today, I would say it's not concerning at all allowed doctors across this country and, and internationally to actually finally consider using testosterone for men whose levels were low. And, you know, we have millions upon millions of men now who have been on testosterone therapy for one reason or another and whose lives are improved. What is driving prostate cancer? I know that's not really the topic of conversation today, but if it's not testosterone, what is it? Well, one, it's a great question. And one could ask the same most cancers. The truth is we don't really know what causes most cancers. We have some what we call associations. You know, so smoking obviously is associated with lung cancer, bladder cancer. Um, you know, we have certain toxins and asbestos is associated, for example, with the kind of, you know, mesothelioma. So we have these associations, but for the most part, you know, can prostate cancer is really common. And we don't know what causes it. We know it's associated with getting older. And one of the proofs for me that testosterone, like that it didn't make sense what we've been taught about testosterone being dangerous, was that men get prostate cancer when we're older and our testosterone is low. And we never get it, never in our peak testosterone years, which is the late teens and the early 20s. I've, you know, I've, I've been in practice for what, three, 30 plus years. Uh, I've seen and diagnosed, who knows, thousands, literally, of men with prostate cancer. And I've never seen one in, in, in a man in their 20s, never seen it. So the natural history of testosterone basically contradicts the old notion that it was bad. 
But, you know, once you have an idea that becomes sort of like foundational concept, people don't question it. And even when it clearly doesn't make sense and there's evidence to the contrary. So are we seeing now that people who are taking testosterone tend to get less incidence of, of prostate cancer or is there no correlation? Well, there's some evidence that that's true. Um, so there are at least two studies that show that uh, men who got, you know, they, now we have the access to these huge amounts of medical records, right? We call them big data. And so they can look at men who've received a prescription somewhere along the way for testosterone versus men who've never received the prescription. And sometimes we have blood test values and sometimes we don't. But there are at least two papers that show that in large studies like men, like 35,000 men, um, where the men who took testosterone had less, uh, lower rate of getting prostate cancer than men who never got it. It's one paper out of Canada. It's American data, but it's Canadian investigators who had access to the data. That's the paper. I think they had 35,000 men who had never taken uh, testosterone, 10,000 men who had. And not only was the rate of cancer lower in the men who got testosterone, but really interesting is that the longer the duration of taking testosterone, the longer period of time they were on it, the lower their risk of prostate cancer. Interesting. Dr. Margaret talk to me about this proposed decline in testosterone levels generation to generation. So obviously you've been in this industry a long time. There's some data that's been thrown out saying like, you know, a man in 1981 at 35 years old or 45 years old will have exponentially lower or would have had higher testosterone levels than we would have now. Is that is that the reality that you're seeing? You know, I have to tell you, so this data has come out kind of in dribs and drabs over the last 20 years. And um, I'm sort of a natural born skeptic, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's too many things that get presented where, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It gets a lot of clicks or views or attention. And, you know, then the follow-up data comes from somewhere else and it never gets the same kind of attention, but shows something opposite. And I've been skeptical about this issue, but I have to tell you, I'm starting to think that maybe there's something really there. There's a, and, and so really there means that I think that there's evidence accumulating. Some of this is from frozen testosterone samples, you know, that have been around for a long time and They've shown that it doesn't really decay that much while it's frozen at you know, liquid nitrogen at minus 80. And some of it is from comparing contemporary data from old data. That's harder to compare because maybe the labs are doing it differently, whatever. But you know, there's a parallel story, which is about sperm counts declining. So the, te the testicles really have two uh, main purposes, if you will. One is they make sperm, and the other is they make testosterone. And they're related. As a matter of fact, it's no coincidence that testosterone is made in the testicles. You know, we have a lot of testosterone is a hormone. Hormone is defined as a, as a substance that is made in one location in the body and has its targets elsewhere in the body. So it travels to get there. But you know, we have like a thyroid gland in our neck. We have adrenal glands above the kidneys to make a variety of hormones. We have pituitary gland. Makes, like We have all sorts of tissues that make hormones. Why is testosterone in the testicle? And the answer is, is that the developing sperm cells need very high levels of testosterone. So testosterone concentrations within the testicle are somewhere on the order of 50 times higher than they are in the blood. 
And if they're just at normal blood levels, sperm aren't made very well. So that's why testosterone is made there. And when testosterone is deficient, in many cases, sperm production is lower too. And so we have these, and, and I was skeptical about the story of sperm counts going down over time, but that appears to be true too. So what causes all of that? Well, it's all speculation, right? But there are two main uh, theories, and I, I don't think these have been sorted out yet. One is that the rate of obesity has just exploded, just exploded. And we know that men who are obese, women too, uh, but men is what we're talking about here, that obesity drops testosterone Mechanism, not completely known. Some of it gets converted to estradiol, but more fat tissue has that. The you know, so there's just a very simple connection between testosterone and estradiol, which is usually considered the major uh, estrogen. And it's just one chemical change. It's an enzyme called aromatase. It just changes one sort of chemical group. And testosterone and estradiol have very different actions. They each have their own receptors, which is what a hormone binds to that tells the cell what to do. So testosterone doesn't bind to the estrogen receptor. Estrogen doesn't bind to the testosterone receptor. They're different molecules, but they're very close in structure. And fat tissue has more of this aromatase enzymes. When people are obese, some of the testosterone is going to get converted to estradiol. But that isn't enough of an explanation. So obesity can be part of it. And, and you know, the, I'm sure you've seen the graphs of, you know, somebody shows you a map of the United States with all the 50 states and shows you the percentage of people in that state that, you know, have a BMI that's greater than whatever number you want to look at, 30. And it just keeps changing every few years. It's redder and redder and redder to show more obesity. The second is whether or not we have agents that are in our environment, things that we eat, hormones in our in our meat uh, and you know endocrine disruptors they're often called plastic pba i don't pretend to be an expert in that but that certainly cannot be excluded as a possibility of something that's affecting us and the question is what's going to happen what's going to happen to humanity uh, 50 years from now if this trend continues have you seen a adjustment in the median testosterone level in the last 40 years. So as an example, the, the lab reference ranges, there's been some some um, speculation thrown out there that you know the, the median reference range in the 70s and 80s would be very different than the median reference range now. You mean the median value of testosterone levels? Yeah. So right now they would say that, in, that a healthy level for a man is between four and 600, give or take. Um, whereas it's been proposed to me, and I don't know if this is reality, I'm, I'm checking with the, the expert, that it maybe in the past was was 800 to 1,200 or, or even above 1,000. So, you know, so reference values is, um, you know, if you've ever, you know, for your viewers, if you've ever seen it, your own lab report come back, um, it'll usually give you your number whatever for whatever test it is, you know, like albumin or thyroid stimulating hormone, whatever it is, glucose. And then the lab puts a range sort of from the low end of normal to the high end of normal. And that's what we call the reference range. And in, uh, it's supposed to be based on a, nor on a sort of normal, healthy population. And 95, just by definition, 95% of the values of a normal population uh, should be included within those two values. That's a reference range. And to a great extent, it's statistical. 
you know, when you get to testosterone, because testosterone changes somewhat with age, you know, as we get older, um, and and health status, people who are less healthy have lower testosterone. People with diabetes, obesity, and a whole variety of things have, have lower testosterone. You know, you could say, is it right to compare it to healthy? You know, let, let's say you take 100 healthy men without any medical problems, or do you do it to the regular population that is filled with people who have all the usual assortment of medical conditions? There's no right answer to that. It's sort of a, a decision. Having said that, you know, listen, I'm doing this for, you know, let, let's say I started in 1988, you know, looking really carefully at, at uh, testosterone levels. So the reference ranges given by the lab really haven't changed much in that time, nor would I say that I've seen much of a change um, to my eye in the levels that we see o over that time period. Nonetheless, there is data, as you pointed out, that does suggest that those levels are, are decreasing. But I'll tell you something about reference ranges because your viewers are interested in testosterone, obviously. And I would say that reference ranges are one of the most confusing things that we have to deal with, both for physicians and for people getting their blood checked with, with their doctor. And the reason is, is that just as I described those reference ranges, uh, who decides what they are? So you would think it's all like scientific and stuff. It's not really as scientific as we'd like. Some years ago, I had a fellow and, and he, we did a really simple project that we ended up publishing. And he just contacted the lab directors at 25 laboratories across the country, a couple of national labs, a couple of hospital labs. And he asked them just a few questions. You know, what, uh, what kind of uh, tests do you use for testosterone? They're different, uh, they're manufacturers who make different test kits. What kind of equipment do you use? They're different sort of sets of blood test analyzers that are used, a few, a few major ones. And what are your what are your reference ranges? And out of 25 labs, we found 17 different reference ranges. It's almost like every lab had its own reference range. And often labs use the same equipment, use the same manufacturer of the kits that they were using to, to test it, and they'd come up with their own reference ranges. So it's very poorly, it's not uniform. And the other thing is, is that they're not based on um, what I call clinical information. So we could argue what, whether a reference range for testosterone should be, you know, the lower end of, of normal should be based on a group of healthy young men, or maybe it should be based on a group of men. If you're 50 years old, maybe you want to look at men who are 45 to 55. But in none of those cases does it tell us when symptoms start to appear or when there are changes to the body. So, for example, men with low testosterone can get low bone density. They get less. They lose muscle. They lose strength. They gain fat. At what point does that appear? Uh, and part of the confusion uh, actually is, so the FDA, FDA uses numbers. Those numbers for the FDA are different usually than the lab test reference ranges. And they've just arbitrarily decided going back um, really to about close to the year 2000, that the numbers are between 300 and 1,000. That's what they say is normal, this nanograms per deciliter. There are very few people who naturally have levels around 1,000, by the way, very few, even 20-year-olds. And, and those values change over the course of the day, right? Highest values in the morning. This guy said 40, 45. We, we don't see as much of that change, but 
But even 20-year-olds, you know, who are at their peak with testosterone, morning values, it happens, but it's not that common. Average levels are 400, maybe 500, you know, for the young guys, 400 to 450 for sort of the middle-aged guys, if you will. And the goal of treatment for guys who have a medical reason to get testosterone, which usually you have to document symptoms or signs. Signs are things that you can measure like low bone density. So you have to have either symptoms and signs plus a low value, which is usually defined as less than 300. That's what the FDA uses. And the goal of treatment, as far as the FDA is concerned, and many physicians who follow FDA guidance, is to get it into the normal range. But normal then is just above 300. So 305 is normal. 295 might be low. And 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 there's a lot of variation in those blood tests. So you can take the same blood sample you know, those little tubes that are drawn. And you can split that sample. You can take part part of it for sample one, part of it for sample two. You run them on the same machine, the same time, and you could get a difference of at least 50 nanograms per deciliter. So 295 is and 305, just using those as example, those are the same number. They're not different. And I'll never forget, though, that I, I was at, at a sort of an advisory meeting with a bunch of, um, you know, established experts in the field. And there's one guy who's sort of been the principal investigator for large, a number of important trials. And he's an endocrinologist. And um, I usually start to tell people, some of my best friends are endocrinologists. I've got nothing against endocrinologists. I'm a urologist. But there is a mindset that some of these folks have, and this guy had it. And, and I said to him, there was a discussion going on. I turned to him and I said, so if you had a man who had all the symptoms of low testosterone, and, and in theory, they, for the, the guidelines, you need two blood tests. I say blood test number one is 295, it's low. And blood test number two is 305. I said, would you treat him? And he said, absolutely not. I said, why not? He said, well, he doesn't meet the criteria for treatment. I said, but you know, there's a lot of variability in the blood tests, easily 50 nanograms per deciliter, maybe as high as 75. And he said, that's true, but it doesn't meet the criteria. And the point of that story is, is that one of the hardest things for um, patients, for men who have symptoms, they want to get treated, is that there's a rigid mindset about some of these things as if there's a magic thing that happens below and above whatever that low end of normal is whether they're using the lab test and maybe it says 280 or they're using fda you know values of 300 um and it's just not so how much are you considering total testosterone versus free testosterone in your prescriptions So, you know, a lot of this, so when I started this, I, like I say, I didn't know, I didn't know anybody that was offering testosterone routinely to men, mainly because of the fear of prostate cancer. Um, and, uh, and in my field, in my specialty of urology, urologists consider themselves the protectors of the prostate. <laughs> and so testosterone was seen like uh, death. And so I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have colleagues who were doing this. I really felt 
pretty much alone. I was quiet about what I was doing for quite some time until I started presenting some of my data because I thought they were interesting. The endocrinologists were the, in theory, the hormone doctors. That is what they do. Some of them did it. There were these rare case, pretty rare cases where people had pituitary tumors, you know, which interfered with making testosterone or some genetic disorders that were a problem. And so, you know, every med- central medical institution, like a, you know, academic center, usually had like one, usually a senior endocrinologist that would see a handful of patients like this. But there weren't many. And so I, when I was doing this stuff and found out just by trying it with patients that it was helpful, I kind of had to find my own way. Because what I did go to it, one of my colleagues, the endocrinologist, to get me started and say, how do I start with this? But the way it was being done wasn't working well for my patients. They were giving an injection every four weeks of testosterone cypionate, which max lasts about 12 maybe 14 days and that's fine if all you're doing is trying to improve bone density and it was known at the time that that worked uh, that that was important and uh, you know it was enough to sort of convert somebody who hadn't completed going through puberty to to going through puberty you know you'd get beard growth muscle definition and things like that so that worked but in terms of symptoms which is why people were coming to see me the guys would feel good for the first 10 days or so, and then they'd feel lousy for the next three weeks. So quickly, I realized that uh, some of these ways that things were going work right. And and the short answer to your question is free testosterone is critical and is more important than total testosterone. But the only way I found that out is I went to a meeting of some of these people who were senior than me and these endocrinologists. And I was a young guy. I was wet behind the ears and I was just soaking up Whenever the word testosterone came up, I was just trying to listen, figure out what's what. And what I heard at one meeting was that free testosterone is probably is a better indicator of a man's testosterone status than total. And I went back uh, uh, to my practice and I started ordering free testosterones on my patients. And right away, I saw that there was a much better correlation between free testosterone and their symptoms. I had guys I didn't know what to do with before who had a normal total testosterone. But they had all the symptoms in the world. Should they be treated? Should they not be treated? I didn't really know. So finally, if they had a low free testosterone, I had a justification to treat them. And, you know, fast forward with that, and we've published data showing that men with low free testosterone, but normal T, total T, do just as well as men who have low levels of total T. They really are testosterone deficient. Their brains feel it, their bodies feel it, and they respond as they should. It was only at the next meeting and the meeting after that annual meeting that I heard another part of the free testosterone story from this group of sort of senior people that I didn't pick up on the first time. And what they said was, yeah, free testosterone, usually the same people say the same things at these meetings year after year. And they would say, well, free testosterone is better in theory, but our tests to do them are no good. They're not reliable. And what was, that was strange for me. And I was still young and it wasn't true in my experience. And I looked at all the data and it turned out that this is just, I call this lore, L-O-R-E. It's just like fables. Somebody wrote this once from a paper. He made a mistake, frankly. He made a, a, a false interpretation of his own data. 
and he was well-respected, and everybody just repeated the party line. Oliver Mullen showed this. That was his name for Mullen. And he's a very important endocrinologist with a very respected lab. But his work actually showed that free testosterone was good, and it was reliable. And we had our own, we've now published, you know, a couple of papers showing that it's excellent. But if you read something written still today, years, decades later, they'll still say the same BS, that free testosterone testing isn't accurate or reliable, so don't use it. It's not true, and free testosterone is good. Do you have any interventions on how men may increase their free testosterone rather than just arbitrarily going after, is, is it just a matter of increasing the total? So you have more free, or do you have some suggestions on how we can increase free with other interventions? Yeah, so the holy grail for some doctors and investigators areas is wouldn't it be nice if we could increase the free testosterone? And if you were, many of the people watching, you may know this, but some of them won't, which is that, you know, what is free testosterone? So, you know, our testosterone is a chemical that circulates in the bloodstream, and about 98% of it is glommed on to other carrier, we call them carrier molecules. The one that in some way is most important is a special molecule that really binds testosterone pretty specifically, and it's called sex hormone binding globulin. And we usually abbreviate it to SHBG. It's just such a <laughs> mouthful, SHBG. And uh, that takes up about half, more or less than half, depending on the step. Most of the rest is uh, attached to other proteins in the blood, the most common of which is albumin. Um, egg white, basically. And then only about 1% or 2% is circulating in the blood unattached to anything, and that's what we call free testosterone. So, you know, all our cells have some access to our blood supply, and when there's a cell that is deficient in testosterone and hungry for it, um, is sitting there, and the testosterone molecule goes by, if it's attached to that SHBG molecule, it's bound so tightly that it can't get off it and get into the cell. The SHBG is a big molecule. It can't get into that cell. The same is true of albumin if it's still attached to it, also a big molecule. But testosterone is only weakly bound to it. So it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. And most of that we still consider to be biologically available, bioavailable. But free testosterone just goes right in. Just it's in the cell. And we have data now that show that, that um, from the European male aging studies that, that, that if you look at symptoms, so they've got a large group of men, they follow them for years, they have all these questionnaires about symptoms, about energy, fatigue, sex drive, how many times they're having sex, all sorts of things like that. And basically, if the men have low free testosterone, but normal total T, they still have all the symptoms. If they have a low total testosterone, by the way, but their free testosterone was normal, no symptoms. So the symptoms follow free testosterone, they do not follow total testosterone. Nonetheless, most doctors trained with total testosterone, for the reason I mentioned just briefly uh, just a few moments ago, because they don't know what to do with the results, they don't know whether they're accurate or not, but free testosterone is better. And so nothing comes to mind as far as anything you've heard of to help us maybe lower SHBG? Uh, so, um, uh, 
So it turns out that uh, we have uh, widely varying SHBG levels from one person to another. You can't look at a guy and know what his SHBG level is. And if you have a lot of SHBG, it means your total testosterone, it's binding all that testosterone. It's going to be measured. Total testosterone measures all the testosterone, even the part that's bound to SHBG. So if you have a lot of SHBG, you're going to have a higher total testosterone. But the guy can still be symptomatic and have low levels of free testosterone. So people have said, well, can't we give something that will separate out testosterone from SHBG? And in the sort of alternative medicine, age management uh, sort of world, there are a couple of agents that have been used, and some people swear by them. Um, nettles is one of the products that's been suggested. People also talk about DIM. I don't know any data on any of those that you know have been published um, but to me, I have to tell you that it's never bothered me much. I, I don't know that that's a worthwhile exercise. So let's take an example. There's somebody who has a lot of symptoms. He's got all the symptoms of testosterone deficiency, and he's got a normal total testosterone, but a low free testosterone. As far as I'm concerned, he's a candidate for treatment. If we give him testosterone, his free will go up. His total will also go up. They're both going to go up. It's the free again that matters. And that guy's going to do fine. Now, do fine. You know, here's the, here's the sort of the, the, the disclaimer. Not everybody who goes on testosterone, you know, responds the way we want them to. Some people notice nothing. The odds are if you've got symptoms and you've got low levels of testosterone, about 80% of men will respond. But that still means there's about 20% who do not. But so it doesn't matter to me whether it's coming off SHBG or not. All that happens in the men who have a generous SHBG is, is it makes it more difficult to interpret your total testosterone result. At what point does pushing the, the total testosterone level up become a problem with conversion to estrogen or conversion to DHT? Have you seen a specific number where you're like, hey, if you start you know, going above 1,200 or 1,500 or, or any specific, um, obviously it'd be different person to person, but... Any experience there where you may caution people about going beyond that? So that's a, people get really bent out of shape on this issue. Like <laughs> there's a couple of schools that thought you have to do it this way. You can't let estrogen levels get up too high. DHT, we have to measure it. You know, here's what's important to know is that testosterone's actions in the body happen through three different hormones. One is testosterone itself. The other, we talked about estradiol before, and testosterone gets converted to it, simple change. And the third is dihydrotestosterone, which we usually call DHT, we abbreviate it. And there are different tissues that appear to be sensitive to, to more sensitive to one or two of these than the others. And all of them, in some ways, may be considered beneficial except most people wouldn't say that about hair, male pattern hair loss, which is a DHT effect. You know, if there, there's a medicine called Propecia, the generic name is finasteride. It blocks the conversion of testosterone to DHT and it helps with male pattern hair loss. And so it's not testosterone by itself that does it. It's actually, so when people take that drug, their testosterone levels are the same. In some studies, they even go up a little bit, but DHT goes down close to zero. And so the scalp in terms of hair is sensitive to DHT. 
The testicle's ability to make sperm looks like it's a pure testosterone effect, not estradiol, not DHT. Bone, bone density is primarily um, both testosterone and estradiol. Muscle looks like DHT has some effect there as well as testosterone. Estradiol, the, cons- the reason that people are passionate <laughs> about this, I think is based on it in incomplete well, maybe I'm passionate about it too, but th- there's a little bit of misunderstanding of what some of the medical literature is and says. So let's talk about DHT first. So the, you know, the original concern about testosterone was prostate cancer. Prostate is actually one of those tissues that is also fairly specific for one of those three products of testosterone. If we testosterone, DHT, and estrogen, it's a DHT. It's a DHT tissue. So you may have read or seen that DHT is considered the most potent androgen, most potent form. Well, that's only true for some tissues, and prostate is one of them. So people have worried. People say, "Well, you have to measure total testosterone. You have to measure in your blood test DHT together with the other things, and you can't let it get too high." And concern is prostate cancer. It turns out that prostate tissue seems to be, um, doesn't really care what, what your blood levels of DHT are. Uh, it actually takes testosterone and converts it locally. Mm. And that's what the source of DHT is. So circulating levels, your blood test for DHT seems to have no connection whatsoever with prostate cancer or prostate enlargement. Estradiol is in another interesting one. Um, you know, there's some data from what we call population-based studies. You know, they take You've heard of the Framingham study where they've done a lot of research. They, they take sort of a big population of volunteers from some area, or they can do this now through the data sets through a VA hospital or something else. And they can follow them over the years, uh, either in a prospective fashion forward, or they can look back over time. And there's some data, not consistent, but some data that, that men who have naturally higher levels of estradiol are at increased risk for um, mainly death, mortality. Uh, in some studies, heart disease as well, cardiac deaths, but not all studies. And the argument there has been because when we give testosterone, some of it gets converted to estradiol, and almost everybody on testosterone sees a rise in their estradiol levels, that we need to be careful about that because we have these data that high estradiol is dangerous for health. The problem is, is that those populations that were studied where high estradiol was associated with some negative outcome, they're not getting testosterone that's causing their high estradiol. They had some other naturally occurring reason why they're in the highest group of estradiol. And the most common explanation, frankly, is obesity. You know, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, fat tissue converts testosterone to estradiol. It has that enzyme aromatase. And even though in studies now you've heard the term, well, we adjusted for this, we for age, we adjusted for obesity. So in theory, you can make these statistical adjustments so that, well, we're trying to make everybody as if they were at normal BMI, normal, normal level of fat and whatever. There's what we call residual confounding. You can't always be sure that you've gotten rid of everything that might be a factor in there, even though you've done your, you know, your best according to statistics. 
And and certainly obesity, we know, is a risk factor for a lot of bad outcomes in health. And that seems to me the most likely thing. When estradiol levels go up in men who get testosterone, they have another reason for that higher estradiol. And in those previous studies, it didn't mean that estradiol caused them to have more deaths. It's just what we call an association. It's something we see with it. It's a marker. And often it's a marker of something else, for example, obesity. So, so you know, one of the most common practices for many physicians who give testosterone or treat with testosterone is they also give um, a medicine called Rimidex or an Astrazole, which is one of these blockers that stops the conversion of testosterone to estradiol. Because of this concern about not letting estradiol go up too high, I usually don't do it. I'll do it where I think it's uh, indicated, but you know, I, I was practicing for probably 20 years with testosterone. I mean, I, you know, when I started doing this, there was almost nobody doing much testosterone work. And so we just found things out, <laughs> uh, trial and error. And you know, the, my experiences before and since, I, since the uh, estradiol story is that most of these guys who go on testosterone, they do great, even though some of them have estradiols that are really high. The one thing we know about that's a danger with, with high estradiols is that a small percentage of men, maybe one or two percent, can get swelling of the breast tissue. And so they'll get some enlargement or swelling there. The medical term is gynecomastia. And actually, those guys can go on a Remedex or an Astrazole and, um, and they'll be better. It'll go back. That's, that's stimulated by estradiol. And there are, there are cases where there's some guy who, for whatever reason, I think he's on, usually it's guys who are on high dose testosterone, where they just not responding the way that we think they should. And if their estradiol is really quite high, some of those guys I'll give um, uh, some Arimidex to, and not everybody, but once in a while, they actually come back and they say, I feel better. There's a third reason why uh, that's given about why to give it, and that has to do with um, sort of bloating or swelling or edema. And that may be real. That one's hard to assess. I don't know of any literature on it. Um, but certainly some men say that, you know, when you, a lot of people will gain weight with testosterone. You do an injection um, and you, you start testosterone. Some guys will gain a couple of pounds. Uh, and then as their testosterone drops, the weight goes down. And it's fluid, water weight. Does, does blocking estradiol uh, help that? I don't know, but there's some anecdotal evidence that it, that it may be. And there's one caution, which is that the danger is that you can drive estradiol down too far also. And men need estradiol. One thing that, that is clear is that bone density decreases. If estradiol is too low, estradiol is important for our bones. But there was a really marvelous study done probably 10 years ago, published in New England Journal of Medicine, excuse me, by a guy named Finkelstein, Joel Finkelstein at Mass General Hospital. And he did a fascinating experiment where he took men, he gave them a medicine that drops, the, the, so they, their body stopped making testosterone on their own. And then he had a couple of different groups who he gave different uh, doses of injections to weekly of testosterone. 
And in addition, and he was looking at what dose, what levels of testosterone, at what levels do we see some of these different changes, muscle, fat, et cetera. And half the group got aromatase inhibitors. So they made, that group made almost no estradiol. And the other group didn't get it. So whatever, testosterone, whatever estradiol they were going to get from testosterone, they got. And in the end, he was able to see not only what dose of testosterone or what levels got people to different places, but also what the impact was of estradiol. Because he had a group that had absent, basically absent estradiol levels and another group that had good estradiol. And it turns out that estradiol is part of the good things that we get from testosterone. It helps with uh, sex drive, which is a brain function. And believe it or not, it helps with, you know, muscle, testosterone reduces muscle mass. Uh, fat mass, forgive me, fat mass. Increases muscle, decreases fat. And that decrease in fat mass also requires estradiol. Totally unexpected finding, very interesting. Interesting. Do um, things like HCG and, and clomiphene have a place for people who are supplementing testosterone? Sure. So, you know, one of the biggest, especially for younger guys, one of the biggest downsides of testosterone is it affects, it decreases fertility and makes the testicles a little bit smaller. Much of the volume of the testicle is dedicated to making sperm. So when you're not making as much sperm, testicles get smaller. And like I said before, you need good high levels of testosterone in the testicle. So when we're giving a testosterone injection as a treatment, for example, or even a cream or however you want to give it, what happens is that there's a feedback system at the level of the brain, pituitary and hypothalamus, that senses there's enough testosterone around. And then there's normally a signal that goes from the pituitary to the testicles that says make testosterone. It's called luteinizing hormone, or we abbreviate it as LH. When somebody is on an outside source of testosterone, like injections, the LH goes way, way down. And the testicles don't get the signal to make testosterone. HCG mimics that luteinizing hormone. So it goes directly to the testicle, tells the testicle, make testosterone. So the original use of this was really for men with infertility. And I used it for men who I was seeing for infertility for years before I started using it uh, for men who just because they have low testosterone. So it's good for fertility. It preserves testicular size or volume. Clomid is a pill, but the downside of HCG is it's an injection. It's got a short half-life, which means you have to give it fairly frequently. Usual regimen is three times a week. Sometimes people do it two times a week. Some people will combine it with testosterone injections, in which case you can give it once a week and it probably is enough to sort of maintain things. Clomid is a pill. Uh, it's never been approved for use in men. It's just really for women. But we've been using it in male infertility going back 30, 40 years. And it will improve sperm counts in some people. And that was its main use until people figured out that it also raises testosterone levels. In some ways, that's the easiest treatment we could ever give, right? Like a pill that you take once a day or once every other day. The problem is, is that even though testosterone levels go up, not everybody gets the full benefit of that they would with HTG or testosterone. And that's because Clomid acts as an anti-estrogen. And we just finished speaking about how estrogen actually is important for some of the functions 
of testosterone. So the mistake is somebody says go on, they go on Clomid, their testosterone goes up great. Let's say they go from 250 to 600 and the guy says, I don't feel any better. And the doctor says, well, your testosterone is 600, so I guess your problem wasn't related to testosterone. That's an error. It's an error and doesn't, that person, that doctor doesn't understand how Clomid works. In my practice, there are guys, if they're trying to still get their wives pregnant, they've got fertility in mind, we'll often try with, with Clomid first because it's easy. It doesn't, it's not negative for sperm numbers. But some of those guys, once their wife is pregnant, or even if they've got infertility and they give up, and we switch them then to testosterone, a lot of those guys on rate on sort of the normal or standard treatments will come back and they'll say, Oh my God, I feel I feel great now. This is what I hope to find. I didn't feel anything like this on Clomid. Now their testosterone levels may be the same as they were on Clomid. They may not be any higher. But they don't have that anti-estrogenic effect from clomid goner. How much are you looking at lifestyle interventions and prescribing different lifestyle interventions to people who are your patients in these cases? Listen, I think the work that you know that you're doing with your with your podcast and that so many other people do about lifestyle and health and fitness is so important. So important. As a medical doctor, we have a, I have a different perspective on this. Well, not a different perspective, a different kind of experience. Everybody who is overweight knows they need to lose weight. Every one of them. They've been told by umpteen doctors and everybody who loves them. And some people who don't love them. They know they need to lose weight, and it turns out that losing weight, uh, start, you know, starting an exercise regimen, trying to get fit, watching what you eat, they all know it, and it's one of the hardest things for people to do. And there's so much that we have to cover usually in a doctor's appointment, and even though my practice, I was very lucky I was able to sort of make my own kind of hours. I saw patients for much longer periods of time than um, just because it was my own practice than, than many of my colleagues. There's only so much we can deal with. So I think it's important, but uh, the resistance to losing weight and exercising is immense. And there are a lot of patients who will just sort of, yes, doctor, they'll, they'll just yes you and they'll, and they'll go on. And I'll say one more thing, which is, you know, if somebody is out of shape, and their testosterone is low. Normalizing their testosterone helps not just, you know, we've ta- we talk about improved muscle mass, decreased fat mass, but there's another part to it that's really important. And it's about uh, optimism and motivation. So the folks who are out of uh, shape, who all know they need to do something, they're they're almost defeated. Some of them will work out, and over the years, this became a more common reason why people came into the office. They say, Doc, I work out and I can't get anywhere. It used to be if I went to the gym or I just worked out at home, I knew I would have to start, let's say, with five push-ups. I couldn't do more, but I knew if I kept at it, I could get up to 10 and 15 and 20 and even more over a period of time. And now I'm just stuck where they're lifting weights. They can't add weight. It's never been like this for me. A lot of those people have low levels of testosterone. 
and they can't make the gains because their muscles just aren't seeing enough of that critical hormone. You literally answered the question that I was going to follow up with is, is with respect to someone who is in the position of like, hey, I know I need to change my body. I'm ready to take action. Should, would your first intervention be, hey, go lose weight first? Or would it be, hey, do the testosterone first and allow that to kind of assist your uh, journey? Because as, we, as you just alluded to, we know that testosterone is enormous for, for motivation and drive and ultimately the, the willingness to follow through on those things. So I think you just you answer the question. I like Let it. me ask you. Well, I'm going to give those guys testosterone. I'll tell you that 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 probably 95% of my colleagues would do the opposite. Hmm. There's a sort of a moralistic attitude that I disagree with 100% that you know that people who have sort of gained weight, gotten out of shape, that that they lack self-discipline, they need to get themselves together, god damn it, and and just do it. And if you show me you can do it, then I'm going to help you with the other stuff. And there's also a little bit of truth and a little bit of myth in the story of testosterone and and weight loss. So their studies, the best come from bariatric surgery. People have surgery, you know, to they have to be morbidly obese, they have to lose a lot of weight. Testosterone levels go up. But you have to lose something on the order of fifteen to twenty percent of your body mass, which is enormous, in order to see a really appreciable change in your testosterone enough to make a difference. Losing five or 10 pounds is not going to do it. And so my job is to help people. Somebody comes to me and sometimes they're, um, it's no exaggeration to say they're desperate or they're stuck or they're sort of just lost, you know, and, and it's hard to take that first step towards anything. And sometimes it's a struggle just to make the appointment and make arrangements to get into this to see me. And like I said, everybody knows that they're supposed to be in shape, work out three times a week, minimum of whatever. You want to stay 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Everybody knows that. Eat less carbs, whatever. And for me to turn around and say to them, yep, that's what you have to do. The thing that you already know you have to do. And otherwise, I'm not going to help you. To me, sort of, not only is it dispiriting psychologically, but it's a lost opportunity to help that person actually turn it around. I, I think that you need the testosterone to actually have the quality of life, the motivation to see the gains at work. You know, which we have negative, we have negative spirals in this world, and we have positive spirals. And and so many of the men that I've treated with testosterone go on through a positive spiral to live a fuller and more satisfying life. You're absolutely right. They need a win, right? If they, if they can't find a win on their own, you're giving them that positive win and maybe the opportunity to develop more wins. Do you think that that one uh, area of concern why doctors don't prescribe is if someone's obese, giving them testosterone may induce heart attack? I'm wondering, I'm trying to think, I play devil's advocate here. Is that is that possibly something that's going through the mind of a physician who's a little bit worried to prescribe or is that even not even a concern at that point? Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about cardiovascular risks and, and testosterone and, 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 and then I'm afraid I'm going to have to sign off. If you ask, so 20 years ago, 15 years ago, if you asked doctors what was their number one concern about giving testosterone therapy, and these surveys were done, yeah, the vast majority would say prostate cancer. Today, if you repeated that question, great majority would say cardiovascular risk, heart attacks. And it's an amazing story where this came from. You know, I, I 
I got to tell you and your viewers, like the, the data that testosterone is bad for heart disease is pretty much non-existent, non-existent. But where it comes from is just fascinating about how we get our information, including doctors. And we get it mainly from the media, from the media, doctors do, and especially if it's outside of our uh, area of expertise. And so what happened was, um, you know, back in about the 60s and 70s, there was a general wondering whether or not testosterone might be bad for, for the heart because it's known that for every decade of life, men get more heart attacks than women. And what's one of the key differences between men and women, testosterone, maybe testosterone is implicated. As the research started to show from these population studies that on the contrary, that, that amongst men who got heart attacks or atherosclerosis, the big risk was lower levels of testosterone, not higher levels, that thinking completely shifted. And until 2013, for about 15 years before that, the data was accumulating pretty rapidly and conclusively that having a healthy level of testosterone, a good level of testosterone was much better for the heart uh, than having a low level. And 2013 is sort of the, the point where things changed. And there were two studies in particular that came out not long before that, uh, which were not what we call randomized control studies where everything's measured going forward and you got a control group, whatever. But it's what we call a retrospective study or observational data. And again, um, you know, these things we have, you can find two groups, one who got a treatment, let's say testosterone, one who never got it, you see it happen. One of these, so they looked at mortality, and one of them was in um, a VA population in the United States, which generally is a less healthy population. And they had two groups that were matched for age and a couple of other things. So they were roughly about the same health status. And the men who got testosterone had half the rate of death in the observation period as the men who never got testosterone. Super interesting. I think there's an accent back there, but I know you're, you're, you're crunch for time, Dr. Morgenthaler. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show and for continuing to do what you do. I know you've got a ton of resources out there. Is there anything specific that you'd like to direct our audience to? Yep. So um, thank you for that. So, you know, my, my latest book is um, called The Truth About Men and Sex. You can get it on Amazon or whatever. There's a great story in there about most of it is stories from my practice not just about testosterone, but included as a chapter about uh, the research I did and how I discovered the prostate cancer story was upside down. It's a pretty good story if, uh, if I say so myself. And we're just about to launch a new website for education around testosterone called t4leducation.com. Capital T, the number four, capital L, education.com. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here, sir. Thank you for your time. Great. Great being with you. Keep up the good work. And that is a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you for being here. My name is Ben Pekulski. This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We do our best to support you in living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Sometimes your body is holding you back. Sometimes your body is supporting your adventure. And ultimately, it comes down to the decisions you make minute to minute to minute. I encourage you to lean in on effective decision-making. Don't let your emotions influence your decisions. Set a goal, be objective, move toward it, and ultimately be the best version of yourself every day. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors for today, Water and Wellness. Uh, when you get a minute, head over to waterandwellness.com, all spelled out, uh, slash muscle intelligence, and pick up the AquaTree water filter for your countertop. You will not regret it. It's just a little water filter that ultimately helps you make sure you get in the highest quality water for you, and especially if you have young ones at home, really, really good addition to your repertoire. And don't forget your Quinton Minerals. You just snap off the ends, take it, drink it back every morning. It's really simple, measured out, uh, mineral, trace mineral supplement that you're just going to love. And if you're somebody who travels a lot or feels like you're under a lot of oxidative stress from any type of toxins going into your system or any type of uh, exposure to radiation, molecular hydrogen has been shown to be a really good way to mitigate that. So head over to waterandwellness.com slash muscle intelligence. And ladies and gents, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, go do it now. What are you waiting for? You know, we have the best information and I promise and I commit to continually bringing you the best information on the internet when it comes to building muscle, when it comes to losing fat, when it ultimately comes to feeling and looking your best at any age. But gents, you know, this, this stuff is this holds true to my heart, close to my heart because I really want men uh, to lead the next generation of young uh, leaders. And uh, this this world needs men right now. This world needs real men who are committed to being the best self, to leading selfishly, selflessly. <laughs> um, and first be selfish for, with your time, and then you can lead selflessly. So guys, thanks for being here. And I look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. If you have any uh, feedback for me, you can leave that feedback on Instagram. You can leave it on Spotify. You can leave it on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.